Me, if you would please, in, in your Bibles, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're kind of in between series this morning as we finished up um, being faithful stewards this past month. And uh, this next month, beginning next week, uh, we're going to. Um, spend a month looking at our distinctives or our um, marks of Redeemer Bible Church, what makes this church uh, special according to the Word of God, what's our direction, what, what, what are we here for, why do you come here each Sunday, and um, what's our mission as a church. We're going to go over that uh, through all of January, and then we'll be back in February, we'll be back and finish up uh, Colossians. But this morning, we're going to take some time and celebrate the birth of our King in uh, Luke 1, verses 26 through 30. Luke 1, verse 26 through 30. It says, Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is a sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The title of this sermon is The Angel's Announcement. The Angel's Announcement. And I desire this morning, dear church, that your life would itself announce the reign of Christ the King. That your life, like the announcement of the angel, would be an announcement to the watching world around you that Christ is king. You know, in 1809, Napoleon was in the middle of conquering much of the world. And all the world's attention and focus was on him and his wars. However, in small towns and in little rooms around the, the globe, in 1809 was also the births 
of many important people. People like William Gladstone, the renowned uh, and, and, and one of the greatest prime ministers in British history. Edgar Allan Poe was born in 1809, renowned American poet. Louis Braille, the inventor of the Braille system of reading and writing for the blind. Charles Darwin, proponent of evolutionary biology. And Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States of America, were all born in 1809. But nobody knew. Nobody knew what they would become in that year. Nobody was focused on these births. They were all focused on other things happening in the world. So also, that's the setting of the birth of Jesus Christ. Amid all the commotion that was caused by Caesar's tax, the birth of Christ was overlooked by men at large especially the chief priests and the scribes. But God arrived in human flesh that night, changing all of history. And this birth could not go unnoticed. It could not go uncelebrated, unannounced. It was announced by the angel Gabriel, who was sent from God. And his announcement was one of divine kindness, a divine king, and a divine conception. Those are our three points this morning. Divine kindness, a divine king, and a divine conception. First of all, this announcement was an announcement of God's divine kindness to his people. Verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. It was the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy specifically, and we'll get to that importance a little later on in the text. But this message of Christmas, this message of Christ, uh, that, that God the Son became a man to live and to die in our place, that message is a divine message. The angel Gabriel came to announce and to explain this miracle. From the presence of God he came. Luke 1.19 tells us that Gabriel stands before God. And just as in Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 in the Old Testament when he was sent to Daniel to explain a vision to him, here in our passage, again, Gabriel is sent to Mary to explain this miracle of the incarnation of Christ. This is nothing short of a message from heaven. It's not a man-made story. It's an announcement from God himself, Christian. And dear unbeliever, this is not just another holiday. This is not just, you know, a, a nice thing that those Christians do. And, you know, they got to throw in Jesus because they're Christians. No, this was announced to us. This is an event that happened to the world. A message of Christ, the God-man, 
come to live in our place and to die in our place and to save his people from the judgment for their sins. That message, that reality came to us from God himself. Born by the angel Gabriel. Verse 27 introduces us to this young couple. The angel Gabriel came to a virgin, verse 27, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Joseph and Mary here were betrothed. They were engaged. They were pledged to be married. They weren't married yet, and so they had not been together yet. Therefore, that's why it says Mary was a virgin. Now, Joseph is of the house that is the the descendants, the the family, the lineage of David. David is the king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel in its history up to this point. And this lineage of David, this is going to be the, the main thread that we're going to focus on this morning. That Christ was born to Mary and Joseph, and they were of the house of David. Why is that significant? Verse 28. Coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. So this is how he begins the announcement. He greets Mary. And uh, this has been translated in other translations, like the King James, Hail, highly favored one. Now, that word hail uh, is an unfortunate translation. It, the most common use in, uh, of this Greek word in the New Testament is just a simple greeting. And that's what it is here. It's not hail Mary, it's greetings Mary. Now, the, the, the church and its history has been littered with confusion and misunderstanding of this greeting. And it's actually like, like Mary in verse 29. She was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. So the church throughout the ages is, is a bit like Mary, pondering and perplexed by the statement and thrown off, as it were, by the statement. Especially in the Roman Catholic Church, this passage is used to promote a sinful reverence and devotion to Mary. That doctrine of Mariolatry or reverence towards Mary, it it comes from making passages like this say too much. They they make... uh, you know, greetings Mary into Hail Mary, and then it just goes from there. It just heaps on this this uh, uh, twisted or or, or uh, distorted understanding of what's being said here in the greeting of the angel Gabriel. And the doctrine of uh, prayer and laud. And reverence towards Mary in the Roman Catholic Church is also comes from inserting too much into the text, providing doctrine and realities that just aren't there in the Bible, inserting really tradition 
into the Bible and treating those traditions that I heard this and I heard that. I heard that Jesus, or excuse me, that Mary was always a virgin, even after uh, Jesus' birth. Um, and so we'll just go with that as a tradition. We'll just continue that on. Or traditions and false teachings that, uh, well, Mary herself was um, the result of an immaculate conception. That she herself was sinless and holy because how could a sinner house the Holy One in her womb? And they use human thinking, human fallen logic to insert doctrine that's not there. So, we need to let the text speak for itself in regards to Mary. Verse 28 again. Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And then verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So just letting the text speak for itself, we do see that Mary is favored by God. Now to our Protestant ears, that might, you know, be, wait a minute, be careful, Pastor. We do see that she is favored. I mean, he says that. Greetings, favored one. But what does that mean, that she is the favored one? Well, it, it simply means that Mary is one who has received the grace of God. That's the word for favor. She is a recipient, like you and I. She is a recipient of the grace and favor of God. This word favor is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as grace. That is, she received unmerited kindness and unearned blessings from the Most High God. Specifically, the grace of God's presence and blessing of being used by God to accomplish His will, those were bestowed upon Mary, not earned by her. Not because she was worthy of something. It was not because of her worthiness that she is a favored one. It is because of God's grace that she's a favored one. It's just like us, Hebrews 4.16. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you go to God, Christian, in prayer and you go there to find grace, you're, find, you're looking for something, you're, you're finding something that you haven't earned. And that's what Romans 11.6 says. Speaking specifically about salvation, It says, if salvation is by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So we cannot say when when the angel Gabriel tells Mary, greetings, favored one, recipient of God's grace, we cannot say she earned that. Otherwise, it undoes the very word that he greeted her with. Favor, grace. Now, As Protestants, as evangelicals, we must not downplay the role or the blessing 
that was placed upon Mary. I think we can do that, right? In a reaction to the Roman Catholic Church, we can go the other way and say, well, no, she was a sinner, and she was a recipient of grace, and that's it. Well, that's true, but that's not it. There was a special bestowment, a special responsibility in God's sovereignty given to this young woman. And as he says later in verse 38, Mary sees herself as God's slave, God's servant. Track with me on this. Mary herself presents herself to the angel and to God as a slave of God, right? The servant of God. Think of this. What is the honor of a slave? The honor of a slave is wrapped up in his or her task that is given to them. Right? How does a master honor a slave? I will give you this important task. Not because you earned it, but because I choose to freely, and it is an honor that you get to do this for me as my slave. Right? That's how a master... Uh, confers honor to a slave. It's in the task. So it is with Mary, the slave of God. How did God, how is she honorable? It's in her slavely, slavish, if that's a word, task. Her honor is wrapped up in her responsibility, in her task that was entrusted to her from God. Not in her. Her honor is not in her as a person, but in the task itself. Mary had the most holy and most honorable task of any woman in history. We can say that without any apology, without any qualification. She had the most holy and honorable task of any woman in history. She was to bear the Messiah in her womb unto birth. And she willingly accepts that task. And in so doing, gives us Christians a great example of obedience and submission to God. And nothing more. She's a wonderful example of obedience and submission to the will of God. And we honor her obedience and submission to God. We say that was wonderful what she did. What she, what she yielded to God to, have, to, to accomplish through her. And that is the extent of our honor of Mary. As a fellow believer, a fellow recipient of grace, she's a wonderful example of these things. Now, for us, today as Christians, the kindness of God is seen in that through faith in Jesus, we too have found favor with God. Dear Christian, you are a favored one of God. You are a recipient of His grace and His kindness. How? Through this baby, through this one who would grow up to be the lamb sacrificed in your place. 
He earned your favor for you. And we have received salvation from eternal condemnation. We have received this grace. We have received this salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the announcement according to Scripture alone. And it results in the glory of God alone. Now this divine announcement of kindness is grounded in the coming of the divine king. Secondly, this morning, the divine king. Verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. So here, right, out the, right off the bat, we, we see the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and to many looking in uh, to Mary and Joseph, this pregnancy and birth was very common. Right? It, it, it's, it's just all the phases. You conceive, the baby's in your womb, and you bear a son, a human son. Nothing very special to see here to the outsider looking in other than the accusations of Joseph and Mary coming together before their official marriage. A baby would be conceived, kept in a mother's womb for nine months and be born through a natural birth. All in fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, it says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. But we see in this ordinary pregnancy from the outside, we see such great humility and the great condescension of the Son of God. His name would be Jesus, which means God saves. And according to Matthew's account of the same, of the same name of Jesus, this was to signify the purpose of Jesus' birth, to save his people from their sins. Now verse 32 and 33 takes it up a notch. Verse 32 and 33, he will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And there will be no end of his kingdom. Now, this is where we go into the deep end. Though the beginning of Jesus' life was very ordinary and very human, we see here that there was much more than just uh, ordinary humanity to him. He was to be a king. And this is in direct fulfillment of the promise made to King David long ago, remember? 2 Samuel uh, 7, verse 12 and 13. I'll just read it for you. This is the, the, the crux of the Davidic covenant, as it's called. Listen to this promise made to King David... Way back in the Old Testament, God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, 
I will raise up one of your seed after you, who will come forth from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This promise that God made to David, the, the, the one who, uh, whose heart was for the Lord, a man after God's own heart, it describes him. This David would receive a promise from God as he attempted to, and thought and planned about building God a great temple, a great tabernacle in which God would dwell. God says, I don't need that from you. I don't need you to build me this, this large edifice of a building to, to, to prove that I'm king or to, to really uh, uh, solidify my kingship over my people. I don't need you to do that. Your son will build me a temple, but I give you a promise. There will be one of your descendants that I will put on the, your throne, and he will rule my people, Israel, forever. And this, this prophecy, this covenant was partially fulfilled in Solomon, because Solomon would be a great king after David, but, but there is obviously terminology and there are truths described about this promised king that no human can fulfill. No human can rule over a people forever because what do humans do at the end of their lives? They die. So how is it possible? Well, this ancient promise is now being fulfilled in our passage in Luke 1. In the, it's fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. First, he says he will be great. In both strength and renown, Jesus has no equal. He is great. And his name is great. His fame is great. Because he powerfully accomplished our salvation. And he, and he has been given a name that, it, that is above every other name. Christ is great. And he is the Son of the Most High, Gabriel says. As the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, Son of God the Father, Jesus carries all the same traits of divinity as God does. He is the exact representation of the nature of God. How can a human say, if you want to see God, look at me. I am the exact representation of God. No human can do that. Only God can say that. And that's what, God, that's what Christ is. He is God in flesh. And when you look at Christ, you see God. Because He is God. He is the Son of the Most High. Humans beget humans. Christ is the only begotten of the Father. He is God. 
Not only this, but Gabriel continues, he will have the throne of his father David. Now we understand that Jesus is of the lineage of King David. This is what was kind of alluded to uh, in verse uh, 27. A virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So he was of the house, the lineage of David. He fits that uh, uh, 2 Samuel 7 Davidic promise. Now, Jesus' supposed father, um, it's described, it's interesting, in... In uh, Luke 3, verse uh, 23, it says, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, or as was thought, the son of Joseph. So Jesus is not technically an actual son of Joseph because of the virgin conception, right? He's not the product of his father, Joseph. He's an adopted son of Joseph, you could say. That's why Luke says that he was supposed, supposedly the son of Joseph. Now, Jesus, being the supposed son of Joseph, uh, gets his... Uh, lineage to David through Joseph, through the line of Solomon. But we learn from Jeremiah 22 that that lineage of the kings of Judah, that lineage was cursed by God when he cursed Jehoiachin in Jeremiah 22. God uh, condemned Jehoiakim, the, the king of Judah, the, the descendant, one of the descendants in the line of David through Solomon. God cursed Jehoiachin and said, I remove you as a signet ring and I cast you aside. You will have no children and, and there will be no kings from your family. Well then, how can we... If, if, if the curse severed that lineage, severed the, 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 the Davidic promise of, of a king coming from David, if, if God's curse cut that off, how can we rightfully then say, well, you know, just forget about that. Jesus is still a, a descendant of David and he's supposed to be king. Don't worry about that. No, God knows that he would have accusers to do that. And so he sets up in his sovereignty another lineage as well. We know that Mary was also a descendant of David. But she was not a descendant through the line of Solomon. Rather, the, the other son of David, Nathan. And so what we learn from the historic account and all the lineages, there's, there's an importance to those things, brothers and sisters, what we learn is that Jesus is the only man in history who could possibly be the rightful heir to the throne of David. 
It's only him. How? Because he didn't inherit that curse from the line of Solomon. But he's still a, 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 a blood relative, a blood descendant, you could say, of King David, but through his mother, Mary. And so you have both lineages converging upon the person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he is the only one who can fulfill that prophecy in all of history. But Gabriel goes on. His reign would be a glorious reign. That is, he would rule over the house of Jacob. That is, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. The house of Jacob, the house of Israel. Going back to the, the human name of Jacob, the, 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 uh, the, the name given by his mother, Christ will be the ruler over his house, going as far back as you can to the people of the nation of Israel before it was ever divided into the northern and the southern kingdom. Remember that? When Solomon's sons had a fit, and couldn't get along, and one of them was cruel, and the other one was rebellious, and they split the kingdom. And it's been that way ever since. And you can have your national Israel all you want, but it's still, in God's eyes, it's still a split kingdom. It's still a, 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 a house left in shambles. That's why he says, only Christ will come. He will come at last, and there will be a king over the house of Jacob. He will reunite the northern and the southern kingdom. He will reunite the kingdom of Israel under his singular rule. No longer a divided kingdom. No longer a household in shambles. Christ will unite God's people under one kingship, his own. And there will be no end to that rule. No end to this kingdom of Christ. It will go on for eternity because Christ is God and he lives for, e for all eternity. He is on his throne now, Christian. Christ is king. He is king of his blood-bought people like you and I today. He is king over the universal church of Christ, all believers everywhere. He is king over each local body of Christ, including our own. He is king of all creation, since he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28. And he will be king over all the people of Israel when he grants them repentance and rules over them in glory and splendor. God's promise still stands. Is he your king? That's the question, isn't it? Is he your king? And does it show? Oh, what, what a kind announcement of the coming of this divine king. But, verse 34, how? How is this going to be done? Mary said to the angel, how will this be done since I'm a virgin? Well, our, our third and last point this morning, 
It is by a divine conception. Verse 34 again, Mary wonders how this great thing will be accomplished. After all, she's a virgin. And so the angel Gabriel, once again, which is a hallmark of his ministry, he explains. Verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. To put it simply, God will create life in the womb of Mary. And just as in Genesis 1, God will create something out of nothing. In Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And listen to this, The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Just as in the beginning, the presence of the Spirit of God is tied to the creation of life. The power of the Most High God is the source of the human nature of Christ. It was an act of creation. This is how it's done. And by the way, verse 36, uh, Behold, your relative Elizabeth was, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. The angel Gabriel brings this up, the pregnancy of Elizabeth, to give a, a validating kind of miracle to his message in order to confirm the truthfulness of this great kind announcement of the coming of the divine king. The angel Gabriel says, oh, by the way, uh, Elizabeth, your relative, is pregnant and she's been pregnant for six months. It shows by now. That's what happens, right? There's no mistake by the sixth month that a woman is pregnant. It shows now. You haven't seen her in a long time. And the next time you see her, there will be a, what is it? Baby bump, it's called. And he says, look to that for proof that God can do this. Elizabeth was just another example of God creating something from nothing. Fertility from barrenness. Life from death. And the ultimate answer given to Mary's question, how will this be since I am a virgin, is given in verse 37. Nothing will be impossible with God. Christian, there is no miracle that requires too much power to where God is unable to perform it. Nothing will be impossible with God. If he wants to accomplish something in your life, nothing can hold him back. If there is a promise that you are waiting for him to fulfill, there is nothing that will stop him from fulfilling that promise. If you're just casting your health upon God to heal you, there's no better place to put your trust because nothing's impossible with God. That's why we pray for healing. We don't lay our hands on people and heal them. That's up to God. Oh, but we've seen time and time again that God miraculously moves and He cares for His people. 
Nothing's too hard for him. You just simply must trust him, Christian. Now, throughout the history of the church, people have tried to get concrete answers to the mechanics of this divine conception. But the Holy Spirit through Luke is, I believe, intentionally mysterious in the wording. Notice again. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Overshadow means to cause a darkening, a covering, to conceal something from sight. Now, Luke is a physician by trade, according to Colossians 4.14. He's a doctor by trade. And Luke is obvious through the gospel that he is meticulous in his dealings throughout his writings. I mean, that's, what he, that's how he introduces the gospel in Luke 1.3. It seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty about the things that you have been taught. That's the purpose of the Gospel of Luke, is to give his people certainty of the veracity and the historicity of the Gospel account. Luke did careful research. This is why it's largely held that Luke is not an eyewitness to these things, because he had to go research them. And it's very likely that he had a conversation with Mary herself and interviewed her about this night. Now, Luke is meticulous in his details about, uh, throughout his writings, and so here, he deviates from that, you could say. It's, he seems intentional here that there is no medical wording, no great detail given for the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ. What Luke does in saying that the power of the Most High will just overshadow you, and then when it's gone, you could say, there's a baby in her womb. The purpose is that Luke intentionally maintains the mystery of this miracle. And it is a miracle. Theologians have tried to explain how you can have somebody who is, you could say, 100% God and 100% man in the same person. How is that possible? That you can be 100% of one thing and 100% of another thing at the same time. And the humanity and the deity do not mix. The humanity and, and the deity do not combine to create some hyperhuman or or lower deity. They are both coexistent natures within the one person, Jesus Christ. How is that possible? The power of God. That's all that is given to us. That's all we need to know. Thomas Watson, speaking of this great miracle, he says, the incarnation of Christ, the enfleshing of the Son of God, the Messiah, The incarnation of Christ, he says, is a golden chain made up of several links of miracles. For instance, that the creator of heaven should become a creature. 
that eternity should be born. That he whom the heaven of heavens cannot contain would be enclosed in the womb. That he who thunders in the clouds should cry in the cradle. That he who upholds all things by the word of his power should himself be upheld. That a virgin should conceive. That Christ should be made of a woman who he made. Wrap your head around that. That the mother should be younger than the child she bore. And the child in the womb be bigger, greater than the mother. That he who is a spirit, God, should be made flesh. That Christ, being incarnate, should have two natures, the divine and human, and yet but one person. Here is, I say, a chain of miracles. And the result is plain. The holy child shall be called the Son of God. He is a holy child, meaning he is without sin from conception. Part of being holy means being set apart from sin or corruption. And so in Christ, the pollution of our sinful nature was prevented from uh, uh, staining the nature of Christ from the moment of conception. And again, there is no miracle, Christian. There is no miracle that requires too much power where God is unable to perform it. Nothing will be impossible with God. Just look at Christ and his conception. Look at Christmas. Look what God can do. Christian, I exhort you this morning, look what God has done. Hear the divine announcement of God through the angel Gabriel and rejoice. Oh, what, what kindness, what grace of God to send his beloved son to be one of us and then to die in our place on the cross. See the royal glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And so I ask you, what is your response to this King? Again, Mary gives us a great example of what to do when faced with an impossibility, especially when it is a an impossible task that God has set before you. Mary said in verse 38, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You yourself, Christian, must present yourself to Christ as his slave. That's your response, is to be like Mary, in this sense of obedience and submission to the will of God. If he tells you to do something, do it. If he places you in a circumstance where you don't want to be, but he's telling you, you've got to stand and you've got to trust me, submit to that will. Give him your full self as the slave of the Lord. Your full commitment to obedience and submission. Tell him, Lord, 
I don't know what you're doing here in my life, but I yield to your will. I promise not to fight your ways. Instead, I will obey what you command me to do in Scripture. I will submit myself to your sovereignty with faith. I believe that you will use this for my good and your glory. Do whatever you want, Lord. That's your response to Christ the King. Whatever you want from me, Lord, it's yours. Now that kind of obedience and submission is the only right attitude for a, towards a king, isn't it? And my friend, if you are not a Christian this morning, you have two choices. Christ can either be your king today, or he can be your judge. Dear sinner, I plead with you. Stop your rebellion against this king. Give to him the obedience, the submission, the love, and the trust that he deserves. And I tell you all, each one of us, who lives in loving obedience to Christ, your life will be like a living announcement that Christ is King. And the King has been born. And He lives today. Stand with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would help us, Lord, Help us to, first of all, worship and laud you for your, your rule and your reign, your, your position as authority of all, king over all things. Oh Lord, forgive us for our own spats of rebellion. May we be consecrated this morning to, to, to obey you, just to do what you say. You call us to love our enemies. You call us to, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You call us to forgiveness and reconciliation. You call us to repentance. You call us to holy living. You call us to serve one another. You call us to evangelize the lost. You call us to exalt the name of Christ. Oh Lord, may we just do what you say. May we do it, Lord. And, and may our lives be this perpetual announcement. Christ is King. Christ is King. Christ is King. Just look at my life. He rules me. And He's a good King. I would have it no other way. Oh God, do that in our lives. May you even be so kind as to conquer somebody's heart today. May they wave the white flag. May they place their trust in you. Stop rebelling against you and just, just trust you, Lord. With, with their life in this world and the next. Do this miracle, we ask, and we'll give you the praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.